0: Well, good morning. We've been working through Malachi, basically a chapter a week through this Advent season because Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. It's God's final instructions for his people before he goes silent for 400 years, before the first Advent, before the very first Christmas. If you've got one of our pew Bibles, it's page 754. And probably, if you've been with us, what we've seen is the way God wants us to prep our heart is probably not the way we would think we need to prep our heart. What have we seen? Well, remember in Malachi, God's people had been in exile because of their sin, but they had been freed. They had been released. And so they were now back in the land, back with the new temple, the second temple. Things should have been going well. They should have been honoring God. But instead, Malachi tells us again and again, they are despising God despising his name and I don't know if you've picked up on the theme that we've seen but again and again they question God and they question his word look at Malachi chapter 1 verse 2 I have loved you says the Lord but you say how have you loved us they're questioning God look at verse 6 a son honoring his father And a servant is master. If then I am a father, where's my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts? To you, O priests, who despise my name, but you say, How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar, but you say, How have we polluted you? They're questioning God. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. The people of God have wearied the Lord with their words. You say, how have we wearied him? Chapter 3, verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And your tithes and contributions. Friends, this is where sin always begins. Questioning the Word of God. Started in the garden, really hasn't changed. Did God really say? So in chapter one, they're questioning God's love. See where we've been? Chapter one, they're questioning God's love, and he replies with sovereign election: Jacob of loved, Esau have hated. They're offering these bad sacrifices, these polluted offerings. Rather than their first and best, they're offering old, blind, lame, deaf Bessie. Even though the word told them how they should honor him, they didn't care. It's a good word for us today. God cares about how he's approached in the midst of shallowness and frivolity. Frivolity. Their priests were corrupt. Their priests don't know the word. Their priests are not obeying the word. They're marrying unbelievers, we saw in chapter 2. They're divorcing each other, we saw in chapter 2. They're jealous of their pagan neighbors. They're questioning if God is really just. And in chapter 3, they ask, is God ever going to come? Where is the God of justice? And in chapter 3, God says, I'm going to come. Don't worry, I'm going to come and I'm going to purify and I'm going to judge. But first, I'm going to send a messenger. Chapter 3, verse 1. The people of God must return to him. And we saw, strikingly, in chapter 3, 7 to 10, what does it look like for us to return to God? It means to tithe. And this morning, we conclude our short series on Malachi by looking at chapter 3, verse 16, to the end of the chapter. Asking, how does God want us to prepare our hearts for the first Christmas? Six ways. First, fear the Lord. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous And the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve Him. So, finally, really for the first time, we have a positive response to God. So, their names are written in a book. Those who fear the Lord, they spoke with one another, and that's really important. They encouraged one another. That's probably one of the reasons why they are being faithful when they're surrounded by unfaithfulness is they spoke with one another. They prayerfully spoke the word and encouraged one another in their faithfulness. Friends, we've got to be characterized by this. Every member of Southside prayerfully speaking the word to one another. Listen to Hebrews chapter 3. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we regularly come together and, yeah, we do some small talk and we'll ask about our hobbies and and Christmas and sports and whatever else. But we need to prayerfully speak the word to one another as well. Asking, hey, how's your walk? How's your time in the word? What is the Lord teaching you? Exhorting one another every day, Hebrews says. And why? Why does Hebrew say? So that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. One of the ways God preserves us, one of the ways God keeps us, is by us exhorting one another, prayerfully speaking the word to one another, so that sin won't harden us. So we need this. We need this mutual accountability. We need to be encouraging one another. And they did here. They spoke to one another. They feared the Lord. And remember, to fear the Lord means to fear displeasing the Lord. To fear the Lord is to desire to see God honored in all of life. And Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want to know how to be wise, to learn the art of wisdom, how to live well in God's world? Proverbs tells us we need to begin by fearing him, by wanting him to be honored in everything we do. In Luke 12, Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus, our king, says, don't fear people. They can only take your life. Fear God, who can cast into hell. And then he says, fear not. Because if you fear God, you've got nothing to worry about. He will take care of you. I love the way Oswald Chambers put it. "The The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. So fear the Lord. And God says he will make us a treasured possession. This refers to the, the private property of a king. Of course, a king would own everything, right? At least in his jurisdiction. Yet every king would have his, his special possession. So while he owned it all, he had, a, he had all the gold, he had all the cash. This was his safety deposit box. It was often his little collection of special jewels or whatever it might be in the ancient Near East. God says that's you. God owns it all, but you are his special keepsake, the item he values most highly. Way back in Exodus 19, as the people of God had just been delivered, God promised them that if, very key word, if you will obey, you will become my treasured possession. Listen to Exodus 19, 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Of course, we know that Israel didn't obey, right? That's what we're seeing in Malachi disobedient in almost every regard. But here there's this promise I will make them my special possession. God's got to do something, in other words. And Peter tells us that he has done that. Peter, in chapter 2, applies this title to the church. You, church, if you've trusted in Christ, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are his special possession. So the first way we prepare is we fear the Lord. We seek to honor him in all we do. The second way, we fear the Lord because there's a day of reckoning coming. Look at chapter four, verse one. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Verse 3 says, And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act says the Lord of hosts. Remember that the people of God have been questioning. God, are you really just? In chapter 2, verse 17, are you really just? I see all these wicked people prospering. Where is the God of justice, they question. Here we learn he's coming and he's coming to judge. Don't think that those who rebel against God and persecute you will always prosper. Don't be short-sighted. Evildoers, he says, will be stubble. Not even a root, not even a branch left. And he says in verse 3, the enemies of the people of God will be ash under our feet. And I realize this grates against modern sensibilities, but if we've seen anything in Malachi, God is not politically correct. Let's be careful not to think that our modern Western sense of justice is more, more refined than God's. The point here is God's going to judge the wicked. Where is the God of justice? Wait. He's coming. And on that day, resurrection, new earth, all sin, all evil, all selfishness will have been eradicated. And the people of God will be vindicated. Shown to be the ones in the right, not because of us, but because of him. Because we're his special possession. Third way to prepare for Christmas is to fear the Lord because it's worth it. Look at verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So rather than facing judgment, the people of God will find joy. The Son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, a metaphor for the coming Messiah who's going to bring healing, spiritual healing, the full and final forgiveness of sins, no more sacrifice year after year after year. We will finally have guilt removed, consciences cleansed, no more sacrifices necessary because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And he will send his spirit. He will change us from the inside out but also physical healing. He will bring spiritual healing, but he will bring physical healing. In this life, God can and may heal your physical ailments, but he doesn't always, and he doesn't promise to always, but he will, certainly will in the next life. We've got to remind ourselves that the goal of the gospel is resurrection. Christmas is only good news because it leads to Easter, talk a lot about prosperity gospel preachers and how much destruction they've done to the Christian faith here and they've imported it abroad. And they will often say things like, well, God wants you totally healed. And if you have faith, he will totally heal you. And they're right. Their timetable's just off. That's coming. There's a lot of promises that have already been fulfilled. Some of them have not yet been fulfilled. Well, Total transformation and physical healing is one of the promises of the gospel. It's just not yet. It's coming. This word for wings can often be used of a garment. So wings can, you know, garment can look like wings. There's going to be healing in his wings, in his garments. In Luke chapter 8, there's this woman you remember with chronic bleeding marginalized because of her uncleanness because of the chronic bleeding broke from trying to get it taken care of and she touches the fringes of the garments of the son of righteousness and she's healed it's a picture of the coming kingdom one day that will be all of us it's coming Isaiah 53 verse 5 he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So let's not dismiss, just because false teachers often get the timeline wrong, healing is coming, it's just coming in the resurrection. On that day, God says the righteous will leap like calves from the stall. After having been cramped up all winter, now free, filled with joy. So fear the Lord because it's worth it. Fourth way to prepare is center on the word of God. Look at verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Remember the law. The people of God started on the right foot. You remember what Joshua said when he first took over for Moses in Joshua chapter 1? Only be strong and very co- courageous, being careful to do according to all that the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all, do according to all that was written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Started out with a clear call and commission. Didn't take long for them to fade away. They had forgotten the law. If they had remembered the law, the whole ministry of Malachi wouldn't even be necessary. They were supposed to be a people of the book. That's why in Nehemiah, after the walls finished, roughly the same time period, this new community is reconstituted after the exile. What does Ezra do in chapter 8? Remember that? He gathers all the people. He stands on a wooden platform. He opens the book, and he reads it. And the people were helped to understand it. The law was read, and it says they gave the sense of it. So, that the people understood the reading. So, the way to prepare our hearts for Christmas is to center on the Word of God, center your life on God's Word. This is why we do what we do here at Southside. This is why the main diet of our teaching will be expositional preaching, meaning that the point of the sermon will be the point of the passage. So, if you're a visitor here and you're looking for a church, let me encourage you not to compromise on how the Word is handled from the pulpit each and every week so that the point of the sermon is right out of the text of Scripture. Even when it's hard. Malachi's been hard, amen? But God knows best. So remember the Word. Center your life on the Word. Remember, 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 he says, because we're forgetful people. We forget daily. And so God often calls his people, remember, in Deuteronomy alone, he says 14 times, remember what I have done and remember what I have said. We're forgetful, so we have to have daily engagements. Remember the word, he says. And here we are on the brink of 2020, a good time to have a fresh start. And so if you remember, or if not, we have put in the bulletin this plan, this Bible reading plan called F260 New Testament. We did F260 last year. This is F260 New Testament. It is the most doable Bible plan I have ever come across. Everyone can do it, even kids. It is one chapter of the New Testament a day for five days a week for the year. So if you engage in it, feel free to supplement and add on, but you will have read the New Testament as a church by this time next year. <coughs> Center on the word. Just like in Malachi, we will be led astray without regularly hearing from God in his word. Number five, trust. Trust God Because he's kept his promises. Trust God because Elijah has come. Look at verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He'd already mentioned this figure. Flip over a page to chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. This future tense of Malachi has become our past tense. John the Baptist is Elijah. Luke chapter 1, the angel tells Zechariah that his son would be named John, and he will go in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He's made good on his promise. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. Keep your finger in Malachi, but flip over just to the right a few pages of the Gospel of Matthew chapter three. Matthew 3, one. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, by the way, it was the corrupt leadership in Malachi. Here we have the corrupt leadership in John's day. They came and he said to them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's a similar message. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandal I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Flip a few pages to Matthew chapter 11. Verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the winds? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Malachi 3, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Verse 13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. John the Baptist is the prophet like Elijah. Malachi's future tense has become our past tense. God has made good on his promise through this guy named John, the baptizer. This crazy looking prophet. Looks dirty even when he's clean like a honey-chugging homeschooler from Merkel, preaching repentance, pointing the way. And remember, that's all he does. After him comes the one that matters. After him comes God, we learn in Malachi. John will prepare the way for the Lord. He will clear the way, and then he will get out of the way. He's the one who will say, he must increase and I must decrease. So here God says, Remember the law of Moses and expect one like Elijah. Moses and Elijah. Representing the law and the prophets. Both of them point forward to someone greater. And interestingly, they come together in this passage that we call the transfiguration. If you're still in Matthew, flip over to Matthew 17. Moses and Elijah... And the one to whom they both point. And after six days, Matthew 17, 1, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Here we have the law. Here we have the prophets and we have the father saying they are about him. Listen to him. Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So you can trust God. He has made promises, he has kept promises. Sixth and finally, how should we prepare for Christmas? Fathers, love your children. Look at Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. Speaking of this Elijah-like messenger, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, doesn't this seem to come out of nowhere at first? It's really not what you would expect. God is finalizing his revelation of himself here in the Old Testament before he will be silent for 400 years. What message does he want to leave with his people? How does he end it? Fathers and children. Of all that he wants his people to hear, His goal is that the hearts of fathers will be turned to children and children to their fathers. Why is this? Because by God's design, the role of fathers is absolutely vital to the health of the family. It's not at all to integrate the role of mothers. They are hugely influential, vital. The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. But this is to emphasize the importance of the head of the home. And fatherlessness has always been a problem, and I contend that the vast majority of our societal ills today are due to a lack of lovingly engaged fathers. Listen to some of these stats. A third of American children will go to sleep without being able to say goodnight to their dads. In 2008, 41% of all births were to unmarried mothers. When a dad is present in the home, there's a decrease in delinquency. There's a decrease in criminal behavior. There's higher self esteem. There's decreased psychological issues. There's more positive attitudes about a whole host of things, including school. There's less out of wedlock pregnancies when a father is at home in the life of a child. There's increased mental health. There's higher educational attainment, higher income. There's better life satisfaction. One study showed that children who live apart from their fathers are more likely to be diagnosed with asthma. Another showed that kids with fathers present have enhanced verbal and math performances. The vast majority of those in prison did not have a positive fatherly presence in their life. One study says that since 1960, the crime rate in America has increased by 550%. With fatherless youth making the greatest statistical contribution to this troubling trend. 60% of all rapists, 72% of all adolescent murders, and 70% of long-term prison inmates come from fatherless homes. 95% of death row inmates hate their fathers and had no relationship with them. Writing in uh, 1980... James Dobson, founder of Folks on the Family, wrote, The Western world stands at a great crossroads in its history. It's my opinion that our very survival as a people will depend upon the presence or absence of masculine leadership in millions of homes. I believe with everything within me that husbands hold the keys to the preservation of the family. It was in 1980, friends. Much worse now, even the last five years, on what it even means to be a Godly husband and father. God cares about multi-generational discipleship. Because if this gets right, so much else is taken care of. God desires men to spiritually lead their families, to honor God. It's the main way Christ builds his church is through the passing on of the faith, from one generation to the next. Christian parents passing on the faith to their children. Look over at Malachi chapter 2. Do you remember what we saw there? Look at Malachi chapter 2, verse 15. Speaking of marriage, he says, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? The question is in context of marriage What is the one God seeking out of marriages? Godly offspring. The goal of marriage, according to Malachi 2.15, is godly offspring. Single moms, this is where the church comes in to fill the gap. Get your kids around godly masculine role models. Men, seek them out. Disciple younger boys. Show them what it means to be a man of God. So here we learn from Malachi. It's mostly been about worship, right? Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. Here we learn that the worship of God is directly tied to the family. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Judah has been faithless. How so? They've been an abomination, has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. How so? He's married the daughter of a foreign god. Worship of God and marrying unbelievers are tied together. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. What we learn from Malachi is that God-centered people only marry God-centered people. They bring God into everything, especially their family. God-centered marriages stay together. They work through the difficulties. They involve their local church. God-centered dads are those who are connected to their children. Their hearts are turned toward them. They love them, and their kids know that they love them. There's not a doubt about it. They pray for them every day. They pray with them. They know that their work is only beginning when they get home after a long day. And they're not just physically in the room, but they're fully present. Phones put away. They crucify their hobbies to serve their family. They see quality time as quantity time. They lead their families in family worship. They read, they pray, they sing. They do not provoke their children, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. They view being a father as the most awesome calling on their life. And dads, don't be discouraged. It's not too late. God takes us from where we are, not where we should have been. It's not too late for you to become the first in a long line of faithful fathers. Christmas, we learn from Malachi 4, is about the turning of the father's hearts to their children. Then he has this warning. The book ends, indeed, the whole Old Testament ends with this warning. Lest I come and destroy unless we think this is just the Old Testament, the New Testament actually ends the very same way. We talk a lot about the book of Revelation and Revelation four and five we love because this lamb is worthy, alone worthy to open the scroll. And then we learn if we pay attention, the rest of the book tells us what that scroll is. You know what it is? It's the authority to judge. Revelation 22, behold, I'm coming soon. Bring my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Both Old Testament and New Testament ends with a warning that God is coming to judge. And we may think, you know what, that's a real harsh way to end the book. But actually, if we believe God, it's the most kind and loving thing he could do. It's the most loving way to end a book. Because if judgment is true, if God is coming to judge, then this warning is actually the most loving thing he can do. It's actually an invitation, not only to escape the judgment, but it's also an invitation to the good life now. Not only good life now, but life eternal. And so God's final word for his people before this first Christmas is prepare for the day of the Lord. And so for us, prepare for your day. Are you prepared? That's what Christmas is about. Making a people prepared for the day of judgments. And that's not probably what we want to be thinking about during this time. It's what God wants us to be thinking about during this time. Because there's nothing more important than having a right standing before the Lord. The bad news is none of us have it on our own. The bad news is all of us are sinners. We've seen that in Malachi. Our sins have separated us from our God. The good news is Christmas is true. God became a man, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we deserved to die so that if we will trust in him, if we will turn from our sins and turn to him, he will return to us, Malachi says. He will forgive us of our sins. We will escape judgment and we will have the good life now. So friends, don't live, leave here today without being prepared for that day. There is nothing more important.